Welcome, and thank you for tuning in to the Graceland Church Podcast. Our mission is to follow Jesus and love our neighbor for the good of the city. We welcome you here. Honored to have you guys here worshiping with us today. Um, I want to start with a story about my three-year-old son who has forced me to get obsessed with this game that he is obsessed with, and it's called the Water Bottle Flip Challenge. Has anybody heard of this game? Here's a picture of my son doing what he does best right now, which is the Water Bottle Flip Challenge, and I'm going to be really vulnerable, and I'm going to attempt it in front of everyone. In first service, it took me four tries. This is going to determine, let's see. Ah! Give me some love. Ah! Someone told me it's all in the wrist. Ah! I'll go all day. Ah! So when Clay does it, he lands it a lot of the time. And every time I try, he says, Dad, you lost. Let me show you. And he also is really serious about the amount of water that's supposed to be in it. If I'm giving him a new water bottle to use, he'll, he'll, he'll try to be like, less water. And I'm like, it's servant. I'm done. We're out. Get back. He gets back to his game. And when he lands it, he gets excited for about one second. And we try to celebrate with him. And then he immediately says, one more time. And he starts going again. And he'll eventually land it again one more time, and then I'll say another time, another time. You don't realize this until you're around kids around this age, that when you sign up as an adult to play a game with them, it means for all of eternity. Have you guys ever learned that? The game never ends. And I, it really struck me as I was watching him do this because he doesn't really, he, he does this when he lands it. Go to the next slide. He just kind of points at it for one second. He wants to make sure we saw it. See that? And he's not happy again until he does it again. And in a very real sense, he is just never satisfied with landing the bottle. He also, he also figures out new, right now he's trying to do it up the entire flight of stairs in our house. So he'll stand at the bottom and try to throw it up to the top. Eventually he'll land it. Then he won't be satisfied again. I've realized my son is never satisfied with one more time. So you gotta be clear about what you're signing up for here. It is like that with us in life in a very adult way. And you eventually realize in life that you go after certain things for satisfaction, and it's not bad, and they can really satisfy you for a season, but eventually they don't, and then you have to pursue something else for satisfaction, and we'll talk about this a little bit throughout the sermon this morning, but regardless of where we find satisfaction, at some point we realize it does not satisfy perpetually or permanently, and so I want to submit to you out of scripture uh, a sermon called Be Satisfied Today. And I encourage you to just lay your heart before the Lord, ask him to speak to you by his word, not by some thought that I had, but by his word about how he created us to actually live in fulfillment and satisfaction. And I'm gonna share a little bit of my own story. We're gonna start with reading the whole text. So we're John chapter four, verses one through 26. We're studying this entire book, the gospel of John. You can dive in at any time because each sermon is really standalone, but we'll see themes throughout. The theme of the whole book is really believe. That's why we called the series, Believe. Believe that Christ is the Messiah, the Savior of the world. And let's read the whole text together, then we'll go through verse by verse, starting in John 4, 1. Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Although in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. 
Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father, Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. What, have you, what you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that the Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Wow, what an incredible story and an account of this encounter with Jesus and the Samaritan woman. We gotta look back at the context. As it says in the beginning of the chapter, Jesus is growing in popularity, meaning John the Baptist had been out there discipling people, but now Jesus is on the scene and all of John the Baptist's disciples are going over to Jesus. And the beginning of this chapter said that when Jesus heard that the Pharisees saw how he was growing in popularity, Jesus left town, which is so interesting because when you study the life of Jesus throughout the gospels, oftentimes right when he starts getting more popular and recognized is right when he leaves. I don't know if you've noticed that, but it's so very different from our human nature who we'd be thinking, wow, popularity is really growing. Let's set up shop. Let's put some roots down. Let's systematize this thing and get going. But he is out of there. And like many of the Jews, he's making his way to Galilee. And if you study the geography here, the context, actually, before I share the geography, look at what it says in verse five. He came to a town in Samaria. So he entered Samaria. The town was called Sychar. It was near this well that was Jacob's well and it was about noon. Now you need to understand that the Samaritans and the Jews did not like each other, and that is a nice way of putting it. It said right there in the text that Samaritans and Jews cannot 
and do not associate with one another. To the point that the pious Jews, when they had to journey up to Galilee, they would not go the fastest route through Samaria. They would sidetrack, go across the Jordan, then go up, then cross the Jordan again, just to never step foot into Samaria because of how much they could not and would not associate with people that they thought were like half-breeds, almost less than human, certainly less than holy. And here we have Jesus, son of God, God in the flesh, who is a Jew and who is now being seen as a rabbi because he's teaching, who sees no need to go around Samaria, but walks directly into it and then does something even more shocking, starting in verse seven. This Samaritan woman came to draw water and Jesus spoke to her, will you give me a drink? And she said, she acknowledged the elephant in the room. You're a Jew, I'm a Samaritan. How can you ask me for a drink? You're not supposed to associate with me. And what she didn't say there was it goes even deeper than that because in that day and time, a rabbi like Jesus or even a man didn't speak to a woman in that context publicly. Listen to what, and I'm not saying that that's right. It was just the tradition of the time. Listen to what uh, scholar William William Barclay says. For a rabbi to be speaking to a woman in public was the end of his reputation. So if Jesus had a publicist at the time or a consultant of some sort, they would be telling him, hey, you're just starting your earthly ministry. You're starting to get some traction. Don't go breaking the traditional rules of man right off the bat because what this guy said is true. All scholars affirm this. It is the end of your reputation immediately to do what Jesus does here. And then even more than that, she was also a woman of notorious character as we heard about all the husbands and we'll talk about that in a few minutes. No decent man, much more a rabbi, would be seen exchanging words with her, and yet Jesus spoke with this woman. It's a recurring theme throughout this whole story and throughout all of scripture. God's desire is for every tribe, language, people, nation, gender, social class, and background to come into relationship with him and have eternal life, period. That is the heartbeat of God, so much so that when God breaks into human history as Jesus Christ, God veiled in the flesh, he is so committed to letting God's heart be known that he breaks two profound laws and traditions of man right out of the gate. And then he says to her in verse 10, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. It's the first time we see that phrase, living water. Again, if you study the ancient context, they would sometimes call any moving water, living water. True story, as opposed to stagnant water, like a pond or a lake. And so she is likely thinking, he's just talking about a stream somewhere. So she says in verse 11, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? And then she gets a little defensive. Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well? He drank from this. All his sons and family drank from this. His livestock drank from this. So she's thinking from a very natural perspective, as we often do when we're encountering the divine. And then Jesus quickly goes deep on it, and he just drops these bombs of just truth and power. Jesus says, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them 
will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. What an incredible invitation given by the master. And it tells us a few things right off the bat. Number two in your notes, there is a thirst that can only be satisfied by living water. In other words, we all have deep thirst and longing in our lives. And of course, we're not talking about actual water anymore. We're talking about our our desire for satisfaction, our desire for fulfillment. And let me just speak for myself for a minute because some people have a stronger measure of this than others. I have had kind of almost like a raging quest since I was a little kid for finding satisfaction. I can track it back to my youngest memories. And the way it usually starts as a little kid is you take notice of whatever you get affirmation for. And then you think, oh, if I keep doing that, I'll keep feeling really good because I'm getting affirmed for that. You guys know what I'm talking about? Of course, you can't fully keep that up and it doesn't continue to satisfy. One just practical example from my life, I grew up doing visual arts my whole life. And I can remember in first grade beginning to get attention for drawing. You know, you, if you can draw something that people think looks cool or, or if you can draw their name really cool, in those days it was like graffiti. So I could do graffiti art and I could do all these characters and it got me attention. And so it made me think, oh, wow, this is fun. This is kind of satisfying. This is kind of fulfilling in my little first grade mind. And so I, I pursued it. I pers- and I did like doing it. It was fun, but I also pursued it for the sake of satisfaction. Can you relate? And then I eventually got, I ended up going to special schools all throughout my middle school and high school. And I remember in my junior year of high school, right before I really met Jesus, which is a whole part of my testimony, um, my art that I was doing, which I was all geared to go to college for visual arts and I was all set up, the track was laid, wonderful. And I just was losing the satisfaction of it. Like eventually I didn't care if everyone thought I was a great artist. And it was so fascinating, at least at that time, it took out a lot of the guts of why I was even doing it. So I started like, and this is just confession time, I guess, if my old professors are watching this, I started like skipping class. And this was like a special school where you like take away someone's spot. And it was a whole big problem for me because it started not satisfying. Point being, there are things that are good in our lives that, are fine in and of themselves, but when we're looking to them for fulfillment, they eventually leave us wanting. This is even true with the really good things in life. Marriage, for instance. Any married person in here will confess, we can say it together if we want, marriage does not completely satisfy your deepest longings of your heart. It's, it's not a setup for a healthy marriage if you were thinking your spouse is gonna be the answer and it's just gonna be your joy and your rock and your satisfaction because they can't fully satisfy you. In fact, look at your spouse right now and just say, you satisfy me to a certain degree. (laughs) I'm just joking. It's true though. Like the whole Hollywood notion of like Tom Cruise saying, you complete me to whoever that, Renee Zellweger, I'm dating myself with that movie probably, but... That's a great idea for Hollywood. It doesn't work well in marriage. In marriage, you learn about the living water and becoming a whole person and bringing your whole self to a marriage so it will work. Point being, it's really good to just sit in this simple first truth. There is a thirst that can only be satisfied by living water. What that means for us is we can stop looking for that satisfaction elsewhere. And I just wanna encourage you, just stop. You don't need to 
pursue those things for the satisfaction of it. You don't need to for the fulfillment of it because it will not work. No matter what has brought you some satisfaction, it won't satisfy you perpetually. Um, It then leads to this really beautiful truth though. We eventually realize Jesus and this living water is the answer to our deepest needs. I was wrestling with this message this week and this text. And an example was even just this morning. I got up really early. I was thankful for that extra hour of sleep. Anybody else? If you have little kids that their bodies are on the clock, it doesn't matter because they still wake up. And so all of our kids were up earlier. Can all the parents say amen to that? Yep, all right, okay. Go home and take a nap. Didn't really change much the extra hour, but I woke up. It was one of those mornings for me for whatever reason where I was like disoriented. I didn't know what day it was. I don't think I knew who I was. I'm like thinking, it took me a while, just like, what, who, what am I doing? Where am I? That kind of, those kind of thoughts. Who is this person? It wasn't my wife. It was my six-year-old Nessa next to me. Her foot was on my neck. You guys know how that goes, right? I, had, I have bruises on my back. For some reason, she kicks me while she sleeps. But um, I was disoriented, and I had to begin to orient myself around these deepest needs that I have and being reminded that they are only fulfilled in Jesus, but really thinking about living water. If I shared that message with someone, they would think, well, I'm gonna drink some water and it's gonna change me forever, fulfill me. Of course, that's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about physical water, but if you study the context of this and scripture, we've established in the gospel of John that Jesus is the essence of life. And then he calls this gift living water. So even in the title of it alone, we get some really powerful clues. It's water, metaphorically, that is alive. And in this sense, because it's from the Lord, it's water that can never die or never dry up. So it is always there. It is always accessible. It is never going away. And it is, and in it, is the essence of life. And often through scripture, Holy Spirit is also referred to as water, this living water. And so you can take all these promises of God and all these powerful truths, things like lamentations where it says his mercies are new every morning. So those mercies are alive. They're a part of this living water. They're brand new. They're never, there's never a morning where you wake up and his mercies are not new. There's never a morning where that living water is not available, available to you in the form of new mercy. And any promise God makes, they are found true all in the context of that living water. There is one thing consistent in life and it is the Lord and his living water, which you are invited to drink. And that's like the only role we have in it. It's not like we wake up and we're just perfect and ready for the day. I wasn't like that today. I couldn't even remember where I was or what day it was or what I was supposed to do today. But eventually I realized, oh, wow, today is Sunday. I get to go be a part of the Graceland Church family. I get to pray early with the team members that are showing up and serving. I get to see all these moving parts of ministering to kids and the worship team. I get to worship with the family of God. And we're collectively drinking this living water while we're here. We're reminding ourselves of these promises that are alive, of this risen Christ that we serve. And then I get to proclaim this truth and just remind myself and remind us all together that he's alive, that he's among us, that his love that is unconditional, we're still in it. 
And if you study the Greek of drink the living water, it's not talking about drink once, it's talking about drink and keep drinking. So there is this sense of we must be aware of what we are drinking because you're going to drink something. Have you noticed that? And we will sometimes wake up in the morning and I'm just using that particular moment of the day as an illustration and we will drink water that is stagnant and poisonous, right? We will drink water that says, oh, his mercies are not new for me. Gosh, I might not ever say that out loud, but that's, that's how I'm acting. Or, or are we even loved by God? I don't, I'm gonna drink this water that says, you know what? There's no way he could still be with me. There's no way he has this circle of agape love drawn around me. That's just, that's too much. Again, we might not say that out loud. We certainly wouldn't say it in a room like this, but we live like it. We think like it. And that's not drinking the living water. So if anything today, let's be reminded that there is no other source that satisfies, but the source that does satisfy is readily available to us every single morning when we wake up and readily available to you right now. If you go on to study study living water even more throughout scripture, you find out that not only does it fill you to the point of sustenance and satisfaction, but it fills you to the point of overflowing to others. It talks about a, a, a living water that comes out of you to others. So that's all a part of this, like diving headfirst into the river of God that is alive. So living water is really good news. The woman said to him in verse 15, sir, give me this water. That's what I'd be saying too. What, what, give me this water. But she's still thinking naturally, so I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming to the well. She's literally like, give me this water so I, I don't have to come back here. And then he, he pivots and he says, go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you've had five. And the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. So this is where we learn that this woman, not only is she a woman, so Jesus wouldn't normally, or a Jew wouldn't normally be talking to her, a rabbi. She's also a Samaritan, which a Jew would never associate with. She's also in her own people, because of her history and choices, really a social outcast. Which when you study the context again, the only reason anyone would be drawing water from the well at noon, high noon, right in the middle of the day, the hottest portion of the day, is because they are not welcome to draw water in the cool of the day with all the other people that are coming to get water. It's very clear that she is excommunicated truly from being accepted in her community at the well, in her shame, in her hiding, getting water in isolation. It's what we do when we get filled with shame. Because of our sin, we isolate and we hide and that's exactly the moment she's in. Yet who does she meet in her moment of hiding and isolation? none other than Jesus Christ himself, the living God. That's who she encounters there. And this is not just true for the Samaritan woman. Jesus meets you in your isolation and shame. It's right when you think you're at the end of your rope. And it's right when you think, man, no one, no one, I don't want anyone to see me here. No one could love me here. Maybe you've actually been outed from your family or something like that, like what she was going through. That is the place where Jesus specializes in communing with you. And he's demonstrating that in this story. Then when she asks for the living water, already there in this moment where Jesus is is taking, he's already beginning to take away her shame just by being there, he also confronts her sin. And that's true for us too. Jesus 
lovingly confronts your sin. She acknowledges this in verse 19. She said, sir, I can see that you're a prophet. How could anyone know that? She obviously had some sort of history where she was seeking, for satis- seeking satisfaction with all these different men, or she was seeking resources from all these men, probably a combination of both. And mind you again, a husband and a wife scenario is a beautiful thing that can be very satisfying, though not completely satisfying in the deepest level. But when taken out of the bounds of what God has for our design, it becomes the opposite of satisfying and it's what leads to our destruction, right? And that's what she had begun doing. And by the way, we've all done that. That's called being a sinner, right? In your own own way, in my own way. You might not have had five husbands, but you've looked for satisfaction in the wrong places that has become sin that has led to destruction. And then Jesus meets you there and out of his love, he confronts the sin. And there's no reason to hide from that. There's no reason to worry about that. You know why? He already knows about it. He's already there with you exactly where you are as you are. So don't fight the confrontation. It's the greatest thing in the world to sometimes like realize you've been found out by God. Because how exhausting to just keep like hiding or sneaking around or living in isolation isolation and shame. People get this mixed up with the invitation to God. It's not like get everything right and then come into the light and be free. That doesn't exist. No one can do that. It's come into the light and get exposed. But trust the God who loves you in the middle of the exposure. And that's what this is. And that is all of us. There is no human exempt from that process. And it is not just one time. This is, called rest, this is called wrestling with our sin and wrestling with God and our salvation. It's the continual process of coming out into the light. So she acknowledges he's a prophet. She still doesn't know who she's talking to. And then she brings up this theological debate, which is interesting too, part of our human nature. When we do get confronted with our sin, it's a great strategy to kind of change the subject about like some theological debate or problem. Like, it's like, like if you sense God confronting you about sin, don't be surprised when the thought comes in like, why does God allow evil? What's up with that? How, God, what do you think about this? What about the Crusades? What about, like all the, all the valid questions to distract you from dealing with what God is putting his finger on, right? And it's the same when you're sharing your faith with someone. You, if you've ever shared your faith with people, you see this pattern all the time where they wanna deflect to some debate. That's what she does. Our ancestors, talking about the Samaritans, they worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we we must worship is Jerusalem. And then Jesus is gracious with her and completely knows what she's doing and knows her heart and replies to her question. Believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. So he transcends the debate immediately. He just says, oh, it's not about either of those places. let me, I'm inviting you into a deeper work. And then he says, he drops some truth on her, also confront, in a confronting way. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We, talking about the Jews, worship what we do know for salvation is from the Jews, which is true. Jesus came from the Jews. Salvation came through the Jews and eventually to all people. But then he, again, calls both Jew and Samaritan in the same way that he would call all of us to this deeper work of the spirit in verse 23. Yet a time is coming and has now come How great is that phrase, by the way? A time is coming and has now come. It's kind of like the kingdom of God. The kingdom is coming, but it has also already come. Like it's the the here and not yet kingdom. It's like we're fully in it, but it hasn't been fully realized. A time is coming and has now come when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. 
They are the worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. So when Jesus articulates the kind of worshipers the Father is seeking, imagine such a thing. The Father is seeking a certain kind of worshiper. Is it a Jewish worshiper? Nope. Is it a Samaritan worshiper? Nope. Is it a Gentile worshiper? It is a man worshiper? Is it a woman worshiper? Nope. One thing, the Father seeks true worshipers, period. In any category of human life, there will be true worshipers emerge out of there whose hearts are after God. And we need to remember as followers of Jesus, it is not up to us to ever look at someone and and pull from them something that God may be doing in their heart, no matter what the outside reality currently is. You tracking with me? God is seeking true worshipers. This Samaritan woman at the well, we see from what happens next, which we're gonna start talking about next week. She has this amazing encounter with Jesus and then a whole entire town gets transformed because of what God does in this woman. She was clearly a true worshiper, right? Jesus knew she was a true worshiper before she even met Jesus. Yet at the time, she was out of bounds. She wasn't allowed to be a worshiper of the living God, according to the Jews. She's not even welcome. You're not even allowed to go talk to her. Jesus is willing to break every man-made boundary to get the true worshipers united with the Father. And so that's why our job, we can never get confused as Christians with keep like pushing people away from the Father. Say, nope, not you, not you, not you, not you. Nope, we say, hey, your whole life's a mess right now and we don't even have to say that. We're gonna meet people that are a huge giant mess mixed up in all kinds of things that are gonna destroy their life. But we don't start with that. We start with, here's Jesus who meets you right in the middle of the reality of your life right now, who starts to have conversations with them and the Holy Spirit starts working with them and we love them. We also love them enough to then disciple them. But we're doing a disservice to the kingdom when we just look at the outer appearance and the outer current reality of people's lives. We must love as Jesus loves. He loves the world. And it could be a whole other sermon. I'm not gonna dive into it too much. Worshiping in spirit and in truth. Do you remember the fact that there is truth in the world? You guys know there still is actual truth? In our culture, even, even people, even the, like some of the most progressive people that I know that I've tried to um, share faith with that I just know from other seasons of life are disturbed by the reality that truth is so bendable in every situation. Like even people that are not holding to any kind of the truth of God are saying, wait a second, we can't just make truth whatever anybody wants to say at any given moment of time. How ridiculous is that? It doesn't make any sense. And you can see the attack of the enemy because scripture tells us you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. There is this thing called truth that God uses in our life to set us free. But if culture convinces us there is no truth, there's only your truth, there's your interpretation, there's your whatever, then you can see how the enemy tries to get in there. You try try to like a, a young generation coming up in this new system where there is no truth. You can see how the enemy wants that to be their narrative. It's not gonna matter to God. He will break right through it. But he seeks worshipers in spirit and in truth. You must worship God as he is, as we are. And in spirit means it's not consumed with outer trappings or symbols or traditions. It is about a heart level work. Jesus did not die 
on the cross so that you could like behave really well, right? Behavior's not bad, but it's not about him dying so that you will then just comply with the system. He's interested in your heart. He like wants to know you. He wants you to know him. You belong to him. You are his beloved. If it's all about just complying and a behavior system, that's why we get so disillusioned when we stop behaving because it shatters the system. It's not about that. It's about a heart level. And then this closing of this text is just one of my favorite scriptures, these two verses. The woman said, I know that the Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Can't you, can't you kind of sense that tinge of hope in her in that verse? That sense of longing, that sense of expectation. Hey, she doesn't know who she's talking to and she's saying, hey, this, this is confusing and this is a mess, but there's someone coming. There's a savior coming. She's saying that. We long for that right now, don't we? <laughs> Things are so confusing and challenging and can be so disorienting and disillusioning in today's culture with the amount of messages and things going on, we are thinking again, oh my goodness, there's someone coming. There's someone who can speak to all of this. There's someone who walks in perfect truth and perfect love. There's someone who actually has the power to make a difference here. And that longing is in her right here. And then this incredible thing in verse 26, then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. It's just unbelievable. Closing thought, it's just so powerful. You, in whatever you're wrestling with, and can you close your eyes with me, bow your heart. Whether you relate to just the sense of not being satisfied, maybe you relate to that and how that's been such a part of my story that God's had to deal with me on graciously. Maybe you relate to the Samaritan woman as an outcast. And you're just like, man, I've just made so many mistakes. There's so much pain and shame. There's things that seem impossible. Wherever you find yourself, here she is as an example to us, talking to the living God, wrestling with the living God as he patiently, graciously meets her at her low area. And she doesn't even know who she's talking to. And I want to encourage you, I believe you may be interacting with Jesus more than you know. He's with you. He's close to you. He's already aware of your deepest questions, your longings, your pains, and your challenges. He wants to meet with you there. And you might just need to hear his voice today say to you, hey, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. It's like him saying, I'm with you. Stop seeking everywhere else for fulfillment for hope. Stop looking all these other strategies. Then I'll be satisfied. Then I'll be able to rest. He might just need to rest in what he's saying. I'm here. I'm with you. Here's the living water. Here's the living water. The summary of this story is that Jesus meets an outcast in the midst of her shame and extends the most precious gift he has, eternal life. And she learns to be satisfied in a way she never thought possible. And I just wanna to submit to you, there is a way to be satisfied that you may never have thought was possible. And it's gonna look like drinking and drinking again and drinking again the living water. 
Drink in his new mercies today. Drink in what he says of you today, beloved son, beloved daughter. Drink in even the loving confrontation of your sin. Drink that in today because he's gonna put his finger on the realities in your life that need to change because he loves you. And you can repent. You can say, I don't wanna walk that way anymore. I wanna walk towards you. And you don't start living perfectly, but you begin the process of just following Jesus. So let's respond together. Just pray in your heart. Lord, I come before you. I want to drink this living water. I want to realize it's you that's speaking to me. I want to even wrestle with you with my deepest questions. I want to learn of a deeper satisfaction. I want to repent of sin. I want to know this life you invited me into. I believe there's more to it, and I want to know it. And just continue to pray, church, and respond as we sing. I was thinking about this silly game that we talked about. When you're just playing the game, you're trying really hard over and over again to get the game to work so it lands and it's successful and you're satisfied. And some of us get stuck in that lifestyle. Perform well, get it right, win the game, attain someone's standards. When the invitation from Jesus is entirely different. It's like, take the top off and just drink the living water. (laughs) Like, just drink it. So there's a a, a metaphor in the bottle for us with that game. And when you get caught in the race of just perform, 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 get it right, get it right, and you're just getting crushed, just stop and go to the Lord, respond to the invitation, and drink again the living water. So Lord, we, before we close today, we just want to say again, we want to drink this water that is alive. Nourish us in the depths of our soul. Give us a taste of that which we were created for. Free us from the lies of culture and our own sinful nature, the lies of the enemy. Free us into your truth of rest and peace and hope and wholeness. We pray in Jesus' name. Let's just lift our voices and sing this bridge a couple more times with the band coming in. Come on, church. Let's lift our hearts. Let's raise our hands up. He is a great Savior. Oh, what a Savior. Lord, in the stillness of this moment, we recognize that you're, you're telling us that you are He, the Messiah, the one we are speaking to. And you are a great Savior. We love you, Jesus. Be lifted high in this place. Be magnified glorified here, God. We make much of you, Jesus. We thank you for your word, for your life, for your hope, for your salvation. I pray your blessing on each person today. In Jesus' name, I'll pray this benediction, church, then we'll be dismissed. In receiving with open hands the goodness of our Lord, may you, beloved child of God, be moved to share with others his wondrous works allowing his Holy Spirit to direct your steps and meditating on his words and ways continually. May our God who cares for the downcast and hurting lead you to rejoice in the ultimate healing and satisfaction that can only be found in Christ our Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Love you all very much. Have a great afternoon.